Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. My name is Roncha Tasmini, and I'm visiting fellow at the Middle East Center at the LSE. I'm very happy to be chairing a timely discussion on US-Iran relations in a post-Trump world, featuring three distinguished speakers who will explore the short-term prospects of US-Iran relations under the Biden administration. Each of the speakers will present a discussion uh, between five to eight minutes, so pretty brief, just to introduce some key concepts and ideas and to stimulate further discussion in the Q&A session. If you'd like to ask a question, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. It would be helpful if you could note to whom your question is addressed. I will then address them to the speakers following their presentations. Um, I'll try to get as many as I can um, in the time available, but if you could just limit yourselves to one question, uh, that would be great. So um, the event is being recorded and it's being live streamed on Facebook. If you'd like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag, hashtag LSE Iran. So I welcome our first speaker, um, Hassan Ahmadian. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Hassan Ahmadian is an assistant professor of Middle East and North Africa studies at the University of Tehran and an associate of the project on Shiism and global affairs at Harvard University's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. He is also a Middle East security and politics fellow at the Center for Strategic Research in Tehran. Dr. Ahmadian received his PhD in area studies from the University of Tehran and undertook a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Iran Project at Harvard Kennedy School Belfair Center for Science and International Affairs. Uh, he's fluent in Arabic, Persian and English and his research and teaching is mainly focused on Iran's foreign policy and international relations, political change, civil military relations and Islamist movements in the Middle East. We're delighted to have you with us. Uh, Hassan, I pass the floor to you. Thank you, Wanche. Thanks uh, uh, for having me in this uh, webinar. Uh, uh, and thank you for the introduction. Uh, I'll uh, limit myself to uh, uh, some quick points uh, uh, and be as short as possible and leave the rest to the Q&A session. Uh, well, uh, we're talking about the JCPOA. When we talk about Iran-US, the future of Iran-US relations, we're mainly talking about uh, the uh, JCPOA and how uh, and uh, in what form or shape uh, the future trajectory of the JCPOA can be envisaged uh, that can affect Iran-US relations. Uh, the JCPOA, the fate of the JCPOA has overshadowed much of Iran's uh, uh, international relations, specifically with JCPOA participants, the United States, the EU, and I think this will be the case in the uh, months and years to come. Uh, now, lately we had the inauguration of President Biden, who uh, in a PC penned for CNN, spoke about the compliance for compliance approach. And lately, uh, after his inauguration, we had the Iranian Supreme Leader as well stressing the, that same notion, compliance for compliance. But between this compliance for compliance and the American compliance for compliance, there's a gap. That is the sequencing. Who's first to return to compliance? According to the, uh, the United States, it's Iran uh, that should uh, get back to compliance. For Iranians, it's the United States that reneged on its commitments and need to get for, uh, to, back to its commitments. And then Iran will uh, uh, respond uh, in, in that matter. So the sequencing is a huge issue here. And I don't see uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that goodwill that we spoke about, the leaders of the two countries have spoken about uh, being translated very easily and smoothly into action when it comes to the uh, details and the sequencing of the issues. Uh, so uh, I would say uh, it's rooted, this uh, two different uh, approaches are rooted in the 
uh, the, the fact that both see the other party more in need of uh, return to compliance to uh, block the other from uh, uh, achieving what it wants. The United States, uh, you know, uh, uh, making life harder for Iranians through the maximum pressure and the Iranians uh, uh, decreasing their commitment within the JCPOA and in effect reducing the, uh, uh, the, the uh, basically breakout time, which is very much worrisome for the United States. So each party sees the other as more in need to uh, a rapid return to the JCPOA. And that brings us into an asymmetry, a sort of asymmetry in the uh, expectations of both parties. Now, I would like to speak about Iran's approach more, and I, I'm sure that Ali will provide us a, a clear vision as to how the United States sees this, uh, the, uh, this uh, uh, point in time in its uh, relations with Iran and specifically the JCPOA. Uh, in the United States, of course, the leverage of the maximum pressure has been uh, brought up by uh, new officials and uh, also many people around them as being a leverage that should be and can be used to extract more concessions uh, from the Iranians. Whereas in Iran, the uh, response to Trump's maximum pressure was a sort of uh, leverage building uh, aimed at pushing the United States back to compliance with its commitments. Now, Iran's leverage building was twofold. One was in the, in the region, uh, uh, strengthening its uh, deterrent uh, against the United States and its allies in the region. And the other was within the JCPOA that the officials insist that it was within the boundaries of the JCPOA, that is a reduction of Iran's uh, compliance with the JCPOA. So uh, these two, uh, you know, uh, leverages that Iran has been building as a way of pushing back against the maximum pressure, uh, many believe, many in Iran believe that have bore fruit and that can in uh, many ways force the United States into uh, agreeing to a framework that, uh, uh, that would satisfy the Iranians uh, in their uh, view of the JCPOA and also can uh, bring all the parties to compliance with the JCPOA. Well, uh, basically, and as such, the uh, sequencing issue matters a lot. Both parties are uh, uh, focusing on the leverage they, that they have built back, uh, in the past three years to uh, uh, force the other to, the, uh, to, to be the first party that can, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that complies with its commitments. For the Iranians, uh, let me focus on how Iranians see this. And I'm speaking uh, very generally on the, on the Iranian side. Of course, there are many debates. It's very, really uh, uh, lively, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, today debate that you can hear and read about and listen to many officials and analysts in Iran focusing on it. So there are different views, there are different points of views that are brought up, but I'm sort of summing up some of the points that are being raised. For Iranians, it's the United States that's reneged on its commitments withdrawn from the JCPOA. So it should be the party that should turn to the uh, to turn back to compliance and return to the JCPOA for Iran to return to its commitments. The second point is the trust issue. The Iranians, you know, in their debates bring up the, uh, the, the fact that they have proven based on IAEA reports, even after uh, President Trump withdrew from the JCPOA, they have proven that they are uh, they have been true to their words in terms of the JCPOA. They were committed and they observed all of their uh, commitments within the JCPOA and only a year after the withdrawal and the imposition of maximum pressure, they started uh, announcing and then taking action in terms of reducing their commitments. So the Iranians proved their, uh, uh, you know, uh, their, their commitment to the deal and their, uh, uh, their commitment to what they signed for, but the United States did not. So it need to get back to that and prove that it is trustworthy. The third point, which is basically within the same uh, 
the, the same uh, uh, you know argument is that Iranian leverage overweighs U.S. leverage. The maximum pressure has has been hurting the Iranian economy. It has been hurting the Iranian society, and and uh, there is no uh, illusion that these maximum pressure uh, are not hurt, hurt, uh, you know are not hurting the Iranians in many ways. But the, uh, there is there's a very important issue that is that sanctions and maximum pressure will take time to affect policies, and they didn't till now. So they turned basically the maximum pressure of President Trump into a maximum failure, bringing Iran's uh, pro uh, nuclear program back on track, and uh, you know the the, the uh, nuclear trucks nuclear plot started ticking again in Iran. Uh, but the maximum, but the, the Iranian leverage, i.e., basically the nuclear program, can move fast and can bring the uh, breakout time down very uh, fastly, very rapidly. In that way, or in that argument, basically, the Iranian leverage can overweigh the maximum pressure very easily, very swiftly, and that can push the United States into agreeing to a, uh, a going back to compliance. Uh, based on this, uh, the Iranians, basically, the, the main mindset that I come across uh, every now and then is that the Biden administration will have no, uh, basically, uh, uh, will have no other choice but to get back to the compliance, get back to the JCPOA, and get back to committing to the JCPOA. Iranians don't need to get back because they, they have endured under huge suffer from the United States over the past three years, they can endure, uh, uh, you know, months and years uh, uh, from now, but, the, uh, you know, the United States will be faced with a real uh, concern when it comes to Iran's nuclear program. So basically the strategic mindset is that Iran don't need, Iranians can say, well, you don't like the JCPOA, you don't like to commit again to the JCPOA, fine, we'll do what we have already been doing under the Trump maximum pressure and uh, you can face the consequences. So it's a, uh, you know, very, a very credible, I think, uh, argument that has been uh, brought up. Uh, additionally, uh, the Iranians basically, uh, if, you, if you follow the Iranian debates the past years, you could see, especially when uh, before Biden was elected, there was a debate on uh, compensation uh, for the uh, harm that has been done to Iran under maximum pressure, uh, uh, which was against, of course, international law. But now they have put that aside, realizing that this cannot basically be a way to uh, re-engagement and return to commitments. The Supreme Leader and the President said that we will follow this legally, of course, and that uh, they will be following it on on uh, on a legal base uh, uh, to to uh, to to for for compensation for the U.S. policy, but it they they basically uh, you know took it out of the way of returning to commitments. So they have already sacrificed part of their uh, you know the the the, the arguments in Tehran, and they expect the United States to do the same. Uh, Additionally, there are two uh, uh, variables that I think are important uh, uh, for Iran that is focusing on what I just uh, elaborated on. That is, uh, the, firstly, the psychological one uh, that the, all, all of the Iranians, you know, principalist, conservatives, reformist, moderates, uh, the moderate administration of Rouhani, people around them, they, they have all been voicing the criticism against the Trump administration based on its uh, reneging of its commitments in the JCPOA. Now, you cannot say easily that there's a change of heart in the United States and that we can start anew and we get back to uh, compliance, then the United States, of course, will get back to it. So there's this you know, psychological barrier that I think the United States is best suited to break in Iran and then move ahead to uh, full compliance. The second variable, I think, is a political cost that needs to be paid. No one, I think, in Iran 
including the administration of President Rouhani, are willing or can basically pay the political price of moving before the United States and into compliance. Last point, I think, and this brings me to Iran's internal politics, we are facing, uh, we are moving toward a presidential elections in months from now, and that elections can have consequences for the JCPOA, for the negotiations with the United States. The current uh, you know, diplomatic team of the Rouhani administration uh, is well suited to, uh, you know, and, and is, has very good connections with the Biden foreign policy team uh, dating back to the nuclear negotiations. They can move swiftly, provided that the base for it is there, but coming the next, pres uh, the, the next uh, president and the next foreign policy team, we're not sure that things can move quickly, as quickly as can move under the current administration. I think, though um, I still remain very pessimist on a rapid breakthrough in this, uh, you know, standoff as, and the preconditions that are put by the two parties uh, being, uh, you know, moving to a full compliance again. But I think uh, this is very much important for the Iranians, for uh, the Biden administration to get back to compliance, get back to the JCPOA. This can give them a, an avenue for negotiations, though multilateral, but still you can voice your concern and then be heard. And then, you know, these interactions are important and the avenue is the JCPOA. So it's on the Biden administration, I think, to move in that direction. Basically, the, to sum it up, I would say, uh, if maximum pressure is to be used as leverage, the Iranians will also continue their leverage building. If that is not the case, I think the Iranians will, will happily stop that. And that has been voiced by the officials, including the Supreme Leader. And that, I think, is the only way forward for, for now. I'll leave it there. Thank you, Anjit. Thank you very much, Hassan. That was a, a very lucid analysis of the complexities um, behind uh, re-engaging and the problems of sequencing and passing uh, the burden or the onus to each other. Um, I'll now move on to our next speaker. Um, we've got here Ali Voyez. Uh, welcome, Ali. Uh, Ali is Iran Project Director and Senior Advisor to the President at International Crisis Group. He led Crisis Group's efforts in helping to bridge the gaps between Iran and the P5 plus one that led to the landmark 2015 nuclear deal. Previously, he served as Senior Political Affairs Officers Officer at the United Nations Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs and was the Iran Project Director at the Federation of American Scientists. He is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you very much, Ali. I pass the floor to you. Thank you very much, uh, Ronche. Uh, it's great to be with you. Um, Hassan already covered a lot of ground, but I, I, I try to briefly, in a matter of a few minutes, give you uh, a, a view from Washington. Uh, look, there are a set of known knowns and a set of unknown, uh, known unknowns. Uh, the known knowns are that we know that uh, what the policy is. In fact, this is one of the only issues that President Biden uh, took a concrete position on during the presidential campaign. Uh, and, you know, the, the motto is compliance for compliance. Uh, what it means is, is, uh, is something I'll get into a bit later. But we know what's the broad outline of the policy. We also know the personnel. Um, it's really unprecedented in the history of US-Iran relations since 1979 revolution to have so many Americans in senior national security uh, positions who've had experience in negotiating with their Iranian counterparts. Uh, and so that in and of itself is really unique and quite interesting. Uh, and then the, the third known is that we know this is a short-term priority. Um, this is what uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the other day, uh, but it's also because uh, there is a, a lot of pressure on the timeline. Uh, as Hassan mentioned, Iran has presidential elections coming up that would add to uncertainty around uh, the nuclear dossier. 
but there's also a uh, legislation by the Iranian parliament that requires the government to stop the implementation of the additional protocol in the absence of sanctions relief by February 21st. Uh, and that is bound to uh, deepen tensions significantly. And in fact, it might even uh, lead some European signatories to the deal uh, to resort to uh, UN Security Council and, and potential snapback of the UN sanctions. So things can get very tense if there is no progress uh, in the short run, plus Iran's nuclear program is growing by the day. Now, uh, the known unknowns uh, are, you know, how are we going to get there uh, primarily? And the reality is that the Biden administration is facing a uh, political and logistical minefield. Political because there is very little support in Washington uh, for lifting the sanctions on Iran and for restoration of the JCPOA. Uh, remember that uh, uh, even during the nuclear negotiations under the Obama administration and when the deal came to Congress for review, senior Democrats didn't uh, vote in favor of the JCPOA. And now the current uh, majority leader in the Senate, uh, Senator Schumer and uh, Senator Menendez, who's the head of uh, Foreign Relations Committee at the Senate, uh, these two were, were, were uh, in office in 2015 and did not vote uh, in favor of the JCPOA, uh, in addition to the fact that not a single Republican uh, supported the JCPOA at the time. Uh, and the, the Biden administration, not only it has come to office with the promise of bipartisanship, uh, but it has also uh, a lot of uh, senior officials that would require confirmation by the Senate uh, and uh, the Senate can uh, definitely hold off on, on confirming uh, the nominees, which would create a lot of issues for the Biden administration to become fully functional. Uh, the, the second challenge uh, in terms of the logistical minefield is that the Trump administration imposed uh, more than 1,500 uh, designations, sanctions designations on Iranian individuals and entities. And lifting those is not easy. In fact, it took about two and a half years to build this wall of sanctions to, 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 the, to its current status. Uh, and so it would take some time uh, to dismantle it and ship it away. Uh, and also because uh, some of the sanctions are not in violation of the JCPOA. For instance, there were Iranian individuals and entities that were targeted because of their involvement in uh, cyber attacks on, uh, on US infrastructure or uh, interfering with U.S. elections, uh, and, and so those individuals probably will remain uh, on the blacklist, and this is not in violation with the JCPOA. Uh, so this is going to be extremely difficult, which I think is the reason that uh, we are more likely to see that the Biden administration would move with cautiousness and uh, slower uh, than um, certainly the Iranians would, would hope for. But this doesn't mean that there couldn't be uh, progress early on. Discussions have started already between the Biden team and uh, the Europeans. Uh, my guess is that th then this would extend to the entire P5 plus one uh, engagement with Congress and with regional partners as well. Uh, and then eventually uh, at some stage, maybe uh, in, in a few weeks, there will be some engagement with the Iranians with the aim of trying to freeze this process. Uh, this will include, without any doubt, some sanctions relief for the Iranians, uh, especially given the fact that we're in the middle of the pandemic and Iran is one of the worst hit countries uh, in the world, and especially in the Middle East. Um, and so there might be um, some sanctions relief uh, that uh, um, you know, would, would result in Iranians also freezing their nuclear escalation, uh, and also some sanctions relief related to humanitarian trade as some of the early steps uh, that, that both sides could take. And then I think there would be a need for uh, a discussion at the joint commission's table uh, so that both sides could agree to an in-between solution. So neither would go first, but they would move more or less in parallel uh, and take coordinated steps. I think that's the likeliest scenario. Um, in terms of leverage, the Biden administration believes that U.S. leverage is not in the form of Trump sanctions, uh, but in the form of U.S.'s now proven ability to turn the sanction switch on and off on its own to great effect on the Iranian economy. Uh, and so without any doubt, if there is no uh, follow-on agreement, 
that would build on JCPOA and would, you know, be a considered a better for better arrangement for both sides. So additional sanctions really for Iranians that would allow normalization of Iran's trade with the outside world uh, and additional measures on the nuclear front uh, from the perspective of the P5 plus one. Uh, that the U.S. would tell the Iranians in the absence of such a follow-on agreement by 2023, when some of the sunsets of the, the JCPOA will set in, and uh, um, in fact, uh, we enter another round of uh, presidential uh, campaign in the United States, uh, that the U.S. would have no choice other than going back to the first square and reimposing U.S. sanctions, uh, which it has now proven to be able to do on its own, but this time probably the Europeans would also be with it. Uh, and so that would be the negative incentive uh, to uh, push the Iranians towards a follow-on agreement. But there are, there's also, as I said, a positive incentive, which is that Iranians could also get more out of a more for more arrangement uh, for both sides. Uh, there is also a need for parallel discussions to address other issues of disagreement, including Iran's regional policy and its ballistic missiles program, but my understanding is that uh, from Washington's perspective, this is not something that could be negotiated in a bilateral setup between Iran and the US, uh, or even in the P5 plus one framework. And it requires a parallel regional dialogue process, uh, which could be uh, convened and hosted by either the United Nations or uh, a core group of uh, European countries, uh, for instance, Scandinavian countries who've been very uh, supportive of a regional dialogue process. So this is where we are right now. It's uh, uh, very difficult without any doubt, but uh, there is hope and there is light at the end of a tunnel that because there is political will, both sides will be able to get it right. Let me stop here and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, Ali. That was a very rich and nuanced analysis. And um, thank you for ending, ending that with a degree of hope, a degree of optimism uh, in transcending this, uh, this impasse. Um, I'll now move on to our last speaker, um, last but certainly not least, um, our own visiting fellow at the Middle East Centre, Anise Basili Tabrizi. Anise is not only a research fellow at um, the Middle East Centre, she's also senior research fellow at the International Security Studies Department at the Royal United Services Institute. Um, she is also non-resident associate fellow in the research division at the NATO Defense College. Her research is concerned with security and geopolitics in the Middle East, with a particular focus on Iran and Iraq's foreign and domestic politics, drivers of radicalization and drones proliferation. I hand over to you, Anissa. Thank you very much, Gunche, and uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here wearing my LSE hat uh, occasionally. Um, I uh, obviously uh, have uh, a few things to say, but obviously uh, Ali and uh, Hassan cover a lot of ground. So what I will do is provide a little bit of a perspective from the European side. Um, I think it's no surprise to say that uh, there has been a degree of uh, relief uh, with the uh, election of uh, President Biden in the United States, uh, not least because uh, it obviously has been a challenging four years for the Europeans. Uh, they have uh, to endure and face off uh, to some extent the maximum pressure campaign, but also try uh, to adopt an independent policy on Iran, uh, which uh, we can discuss to what success has been achieved or not. Uh, but I think generally speaking, it's no surprise that the Europeans really don't like to be at odds uh, with the United States. Uh, they prefer a situation in which uh, there is a strong coordination, uh, partnership and transatlantic uh, cooperation on uh, several fights, but Iran is certainly one that uh, has historically been characterized by that kind of default position. Uh, and therefore there is this sense of relief that the US is again, uh, prioritizing talking uh, with the partners and allies, including obviously with the E3 and the EU on Iran. And that uh, is perceived as facilitating things and uh, providing some uh, margin of improvement uh, to the current situation. That, however, doesn't mean that uh, 
there is only optimism in European capitals. So there is obviously awareness that because of precisely everything that has been said up until now, uh, the road is not uh, as straightforward and there are several challenges uh, moving ahead, uh, particularly when it comes to the sequencing, the timing, but also especially from a European perspective uh, when it comes to the nature uh, of the Iranian nuclear activities, uh, which is obviously raising the concerns from uh, particularly the three capitals, but not only. So what is happening is that uh, the E3 in particular, but the EU in general is watching closely developments and certainly looking for what are the moves that the Biden administration will take, but also Iran will take in response uh, to, uh, to that. Uh, and what I would say is that the position of the European capital is uh, certainly perceived as less active uh, than what we have seen over the past three years. There is a perception that they are taking a kind of a wait and see approach. And uh, uh, I think the risk is that uh, the EU is perceived as uh, uh, really uh, being able to do little uh, to improve currently the situation, to have uh, very limited tools at its disposal uh, with everything depending on what the US and uh, Iran uh, do. Uh, but I think uh, this is not really reflective of the reality, uh, even uh, within a project that we are conducting at RUSI, we identify various drivers that really lead to change when it comes to the Iranian nuclear dossier. And while obviously the US policy towards Iran is one of them, uh, when it comes to where the direction of the Iranian nuclear issue will be, there are other drivers as well. And I think the EU, the E3, remains in, in a strong position to affect at least some of them. Uh, I think so the approach of, uh, you know, the wait and see kind of strategy is not really uh, something that is perceived as uh, um, likely to achieve uh, productive results and being constructed to the current situation. Uh, for instance, there are avenues for the E3 and the EU to affect developments when it comes to, uh, for instance, uh, building the bridge between the two sides. It's true that, um, and there is a question about this uh, also in the chat, there is uh, you know, this consideration about the US and Iran potentially uh, not needing a go-between or intermediaries uh, because uh, they have engaged directly in the past and because uh, in the end it's uh, them who will decide the fate, the fate of uh, the dossier. But uh, we have seen in the past, uh, in 2012, 2013, when uh, direct engagement was already taking place that uh, really uh, a go in between these two uh, were needed and the E3 in particular were necessary because of the, um, I would say, um, resistance in both sides, in both in DC, but also in Tehran about uh, having this direct negotiation when it, it wasn't taking place as a back channel or behind the scene. Having that kind of joint commission framework and the E3 as an umbrella uh, to maintain the kind of negotiation. I think it's a useful framework, has been uh, existing since 2003. So I think it's something that is uh, widely perceived as uh, constructive and should continue to be in place. And I think um, simply the fact that uh, Zarif, uh, the foreign minister himself yesterday has been mentioning uh, the role that the EU can play in choreographing the steps uh, that the Iranian side and the US side should take to, to return to compliance for compliance is an indication of the fact that despite all the criticism that the Iranians have uh, made of the E3 stance over the past three years, there is uh, this uh, expectation still that uh, they will play a role and a constructive one when it comes to facilitating negotiation with the United States. So I think uh, this is you know, certainly something on which the European side can help. Uh, but uh, you know, more uh, in practical terms, there are also issues linked to, uh, say, economic relief, uh, where the US uh, is definitely uh, limited uh, to deliver, at least in the short terms. We know that there is obviously the discussion about sanction relief, but we all know how challenging that has been, even in 2016, when all sanctions have been lifted. And still, there were challenges when it came to uh, foreign direct investment in Iran, but also the provision of humanitarian aid and humanitarian channel 
uh, even when the legitimate trade was allowed. So I think this is especially now that there is no uh, confrontational administration in the US uh, and uh, probably an expectation that secondary sanction can have less of an effect or even be removed to some extent by the Biden administration. This uh, avenue is something that the EU could explore when it comes to provision of aid, support for COVID, but also facilitation of legitimate trade uh, more in general, all things that obviously have been prevented under the Trump administration. And last but not least, uh, um, the role that the EU can play is also in the medium to longer term on the regional front. I mean, Ali referred to that uh, uh, in his remarks, but I think it's no secret now that we are all talking about a follow-on agreement and uh, de-escalation as something that needs to be sustainable long-term and uh, also inclusive with regional countries being really the, the players in this, uh, in this kind of framework. Uh, and uh, Ali has mentioned the role that Scandinavian countries can play, but I would just refer also to the MSO mission, the French-led mission, which allegedly uh, was given that role to facilitate that kind of de-escalation in the region and uh, you know, ideally to play that kind of role of guarantor. I think now that we are in a situation in which uh, there are even more prospects for the nuclear issue to be uh, resolved, even if not quickly and not easily, I think really uh, the Europeans should invest also in the longer term discussion and making sure that uh, whatever happens on the regional front uh, is uh, sustainable and inclusive with all regional actors being part of it. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, this perception that the E3 and the EU really are um, supposed to stand by and just watch what's happening is really not built in, in the reality of uh, their, yes, limited, but still existing power and tools at their disposal. Uh, what I would say is that there are two risks and mistakes that uh, the E3 and the EU could make moving forward. One is not to size the opportunity and basically play a too passive role, or even worse, uh, play a not constructive role in this situation. Uh, we obviously know that uh, we have seen divergent messages uh, coming out of E3 capitals. Uh, from France to Germany in particular, these have created confusion uh, both in DC and in Iran about what the European position is really on Iran, uh, whether there is support for compliance for compliance or whether there is actually a push uh, right from the start for broader negotiation and uh, a JCPOA 2.0. So I think these divisions are not helping uh, with the image that the Europeans have been created, especially over the past three years, which has been of unprecedented unity. Even when we were talking about the risks of Brexit, the risk of actors breaking ranks and potentially um, siding with the United States and maximum pressure. I think it, it's counterproductive to take that kind of divided role right now when actually the role could be and should be of uh, facilitating talks and uh, play a constructive role instead. Uh, the second mistake which I quickly would mention is also to be too confident that uh, now that we are back on the transatlantic track and that uh, cooperation with the United States is good, good once again on Iran as on other issue, then there is no need anymore to invest on the tools that would allow uh, European side to have an independent policy on Iran or on other issues moving forward. So I'm talking about the broader discussion about strategic autonomy. I'm talking about instruments such as INSTEX, but I mentioned also MSO. I think there is a risk that the Europeans will drop them all and not invest in them uh, simply you know, because now transatlantic relations are back in the cards. But I think that would be a mistake because it's very possible that in four years time, we are gonna be back in a situation in which again, uh, I would say policies will diverge. And I think the Europeans should be prepared and should have their tools in place for that situation to be addressed in a different and more efficient manner.
uh, should uh, that risk emerge once again. I think I will stop here, but I'm happy to address any question uh, during the Q&A. Thank you, Gunt. Thank you so much, Anissa. Thanks for shedding light um, on the European dimension and um, identifying the challenging role uh, position that Europeans have um, in these negotiations and how they um, can play an active role in regulating and managing tensions. I'll now move on to the uh, questions. Uh, we have a few, a few questions lined up. Um, I'll begin, I'll direct the first question to Hassan. Um, Hassan, the question is, what is the likely outcome of the presidential elections in June? And how do you feel that that will influence the JCPOA? So, uh, as a result of the, uh, you know, the fate of the JCPOA under maximum pressure, obviously the moderates have uh, lost much of the grounds that brought them to power back in 2013 and 2017. And if the situation continues as it is now, and I think it will, then the uh, principalists, the, con the conservatives will have the upper hand, both in terms of the rhetoric, criticizing the moderate approach in foreign policy, and that had uh, you know, very uh, bad uh, consequences for internal uh, domestic politics and economics in specific. So uh, they have the upper hand already. I think uh, pro provided that this situation continues as it is between Iran and the uh, United States and the Europeans in in, within the JCPOA, I think uh, the conservatives will win decisively in the upcoming elections. Now, if there's a breakthrough, there will be a sort of, you know, speculations going around uh, and, and uh, th this will have a psychological effect on the people, on the political spectrum in general. Uh, now, if, if the conservatives are to win, I think uh, they, they don't have that personal connection with the Biden administration, its foreign policy team. They uh, are certainly less enthusiastic in negotiating with the United States. Uh, there are different reasons for that, be it ideological or political inter for internal domestic you know, politics. Uh, so there are different uh, reasons for their lack of enthusiasm uh, in dis discussions with the United States. But still, uh, I think they, they will go to that uh, direction uh, with less enthusiasm. Their view is more sort of inward-looking, empowering, leverage-building, uh, and, and uh, banking on domestic potential. Uh, when it comes to U.S. sanctions, as opposed to focusing on lifting the sanctions, which is the first top priority of the current administration. Now, if the uh, moderates or reformists are to win in the next presidential election, which I find it very highly unlikely, uh, you know, taking the current situation into account, uh, the, we, we can expect that the same approach of the President Rouhani in, in its dealings with the United States and JCPOA parties to continue. Thank you very much. Um, I'll move on to Ali. Um, there's a question um, on what, are, what prospect is there that a reduction of Iranian interference in the Middle East would be part of any future agreement, hence overcoming a major stopper for some in the US. This also links up to another question, um, which is would Iran re-enter the, the JCPOA if the contingency requirements were updated, or if it was linked to regional de-escalation and ballistic missile development? Would they, or would they uh, enter only the original uh, deal? I'll leave that for you, Ali. Thank you. Uh, that's a good question. Look, uh, the view in the Biden administration is that uh, if you uh, want to add additional uh, elements to the JCPOA, be it on the nuclear front or on the regional issue or on the JCPOA, um, you know, this will just open a can of worms that would make uh, restoration of the JCPOA extremely difficult. One has to remember that, um, you know, regardless of the amount of leverage uh, that one has, it is very difficult to negotiate with the other side if there is no trust. And because of what has happened to the JCPOA, uh, it is, uh, you know, the, the view uh, in, within the Biden team is that it is very difficult to discuss about anything else other than restoration of the JCPOA. And that should be the first step 
uh, towards additional negotiations. So, um, you know, this doesn't mean that the U.S. would ignore uh, other issues of disagreement with Iran, but it means that uh, they still believe that without restoration of the JCPOA, no other agreement could be achieved with the Iranian side. Now, as also, as I said, um, you know, this, again, doesn't mean that the same format uh, that worked for uh, concluding the JCPOA or now for its revival uh, is a format that could be applied to other areas of disagreement. Neither the, the core bargain, uh, I would say, would work uh, in, in the same arrangement. Look, in the JCPOA, the core bargain was that uh, Iran would uh, limit its nuclear program and subject it to rigorous monitoring in return for economic incentives. The reason this worked was that at least since 2003, the nuclear issue has not been core to Iran's national security. So it was willing to give it away in return for economic incentives. Uh, but if it is to make a deal on its missiles program, which is core to its national security, or its support for its uh, partners and proxies in the region, which again are seen as uh, a pillar of its defensive policy, then uh, the, the reciprocation cannot be in the form of economic incentives and it has to be in the form of uh, security incentives. And it also requires different actors to be at the table because you know, the Saudis, Emiratis, other Gulf countries, they have an interest in this. And the United States is not in a position to negotiate on their behalf. And so there needs to be another format, uh, which is why uh, I said that uh, uh, it appears that the Biden administration would be interested in supporting a regional process, not a P5 plus one Iran process to address other issues. And again, a lot of people say, it's a mistake to give away the leverage and um, you know, uh, restore the JCPOA because then Iran would have no incentive to negotiate uh, on any other issue. And I think the mistake is that they look over the experience of the past few years. And I think the Iranians have realized that any kind of transactional narrow deal with the US is not stable in the broader context of enmity between Iran and the US and the respective regional allies in the region. So you need to have uh, you know, a deal that is more stable than the JCPOA, which means that there is a need for uh, agreeing to a JCPOA 2.0. Uh, and there's also a need for de-escalation in the region, uh, which uh, I think the Iranians are not against if they're not singled out. Uh, you know, Iran's missile program is a concern for regional countries, but the reality is that there are other countries in the region like Israel or Saudi Arabia who have longer range missiles than Iran. So. We should look at this not as an Iran problem, but as a regional arms control agreement. Uh, and again, uh, you know, when you look at conflicts in the region, in Yemen, in Syria, uh, you know, the situation in Iraq, in Lebanon, uh, these are all um, multi-party uh, um, um, areas of theaters of competition. Uh, and so you would require all the stakeholders to be at the table if a solution is to be found. Great, thank you, Ali. Uh, the next question uh, is for Anise. Anise, Iran-Afghanistan Taliban meeting in Tehran depicts that Iran wants to be part of the Afghan peace process. Will this help to bridge up Iran-US relations? Well, I think Afghanistan is a complicated file to, uh, to uh, see rapprochement between the US and Iran. I think it's right that uh, Iran wants to be involved in a process, uh, but I think the process is different from the one currently undergoing. Uh, the Iranian stance is quite clear. Uh, they don't like this uh, uh, agreement and the process because it's perceived as very US Taliban only, uh, not inclusive, uh, not uh, bringing in different stakeholders. And I think the Iranian side would be uh, much more willing to be involved and even engaging uh, with the US if there was a process which was uh, more uh, comprehensive, perceived as, as such at least. Uh, we have seen example of those, uh, um, say from Russia and uh, you know the attempt from uh, other regional actors uh, to bring in uh, other regional players. So, so I think as it stands, uh, the process is unlikely to bring in uh, any kind of uh, direct uh, engagement between the US and Iran on Afghanistan. But I think there is uh, the opportunity for that uh, file to become uh, an avenue of uh, engagement as it has been uh, in the past. We all know what happened in 2001. Uh, so I think, you know, it, it cannot be excluded, but not under the current circumstances. 
Thanks a lot, Anissa. I'll just throw in another question since you're discussing uh, regional um, states. Uh, what is the impact um, of um, Iran? What are, what are the implications of Iran rejoining the JCPOA for the neighboring uh, states like Iraq, Iraq's political climate? What impact will it have? Yeah, so I think, um, again, like it's from the Iraqi perspective, I would assume that uh, any kind of uh, uh, engagement with the United States is perceived as positive. Uh, we have seen what has happened, especially over the past couple of years. Uh, Iraq has been uh, one of the main theaters of confrontation, indirect confrontation between the United States and Iran. Uh, with uh, attacks uh, starting with the killing of Soleimani and then the response from the Iranian side, but also attacks from uh, some of the armed groups uh, which are active in Iraq and some which are backed from the Iranian side uh, to uh, US assets, uh, uh, bases and all of that. I think that obviously has intensified the perception from the Iraqi side that uh, any kind of escalation of tensions between the US and Iran has direct repercussion for the stability of Iraq as well. So uh, I don't think there is any kind of prioritization of the nuclear issue as such, but uh, an engagement, a diplomatic uh, engagement that would facilitate a rapprochement or a de-escalation de of tension between the US and Iran would be perceived as positive from the Iraqi side because then it would reduce the chances of, uh, of uh, leading the country to become a front of confrontation between the two sides. Great, thank you very much. Um, Ali, a question for you. Um, lots of brinkmanship going on in terms of who moves first. Uh, uh, we've discussed that about who's going to re-enter first or comply first with the JCPOA. Um, as, a, as an option, as a first move uh, that is non-JCPOA related, could the US support or not block Iran's $5 billion IMF bailout requests, which it critically needs? Um, that's a good question. Uh, yes, I think that is quite possible. In fact, uh, President Biden uh, already during the first week uh, of his presidency uh, issued a, an order asking the Treasury Department to look into uh, possible uh, humanitarian implications of US sanctions in the middle of uh, the pandemic. Uh, he wants to make sure that U.S. sanctions are not preventing the fight against uh, COVID-19, uh, wherever it's happening, be it in Iran or Venezuela or anywhere else. Um, and so the expectation is that uh, um, even regardless of the pace of negotiations uh, uh, on the JCPOA restoration, that we would see some progress on that front. And the IMF loan uh, is uh, one of the potential dimensions. The U.S. Uh, representatives to the IMF are banned by law because Iran is considered a state sponsor of terrorism in the U.S. system uh, to support uh, a, a, a granting a loan to Iran. Uh, but they can uh, abstain uh, from, from the vote and at least not, uh, not block it. And because this is an emergency loan, uh, it doesn't require uh, more than 50%, which I think Iranians would be able to get with support from uh, the Europeans. Uh, but, you know, this is... Uh, whoever asked the question is absolutely right that there's a lot of brinksmanship going on. And, you know, we've seen this movie before. There was also a lot of who will go first during the JCPOA negotiations. The difference now is that we obviously had the experience of the Trump administration and U.S. reneging on its obligations. And so mistrust, I would say, is now even higher than was the case in 2015, 2016. Uh, but again, we've also have seen that when there is a will, there is a way. Uh, and the Iranians have already indicated that they might consider uh, the Europeans and the Joint Commission basically uh, playing the role of coming up with a timetable uh, in which we would see uh, a return to full compliance in a staggered way uh, and in a way that is basically coordinated between the two sides. So neither side believes that it's, uh, it's doing taking steps on its own with the expectation that the other would reciprocate. Thank you, Ali. There's a, a related question that I'm just going to throw in now. Um, which sanctions uh, do you think will be the most contentious, the most difficult to lift, and that Tehran will absolutely insist on? Um, so the most difficult sanctions are the ones that are um, based on uh, counterterrorism uh, authorities. Uh, basically, the designation of the Revolutionary Guards as a uh, foreign terrorist organization 
uh, and so on. Um, but look, uh, the reality is some of these sanctions uh, were uh, explicitly and publicly imposed with the um, you know, expressed desire to tie President Biden's hands in restore, restoring the JCPOA, which means that although they're not uh, nuclear in nature, they are nuclear in intention. And so they could be lifted with the same uh, presidential authorities of restoring the JCPOA. And some of them are not necessary to, to lift in the sense that, you know, the IRGC was already uh, sanctioned uh, under different authorities, but for its uh, support for terrorism. Uh, and uh, it was even blacklisted by the UN uh, until uh, October of last year. So, um, and that didn't stop the implementation of the JCPOA. And so hopefully this wouldn't be a major obstacle, but, you know, I think sanctions that are uh, have the terrorism label uh, would, would be the most contentious and people would fight them out in the US. The Central Bank of Iran, for instance, now is designated for support for terrorism. But obviously without lifting uh, sanctions on the Central Bank, there is no way that Iran would be able to conduct uh, normal trade with the outside world or repatriate its oil revenue. So those sanctions will have to be lifted because at the end of the day, that would serve US national security uh, by capping and freezing Iran's nuclear program and then holding it back. Right, thank you, Ali. Um, Hassan, I'll ask uh, this question. It's to do with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, the question here is, what would the result of any sort of participation of Iran's so-called adversaries in the next round of Iran and the P5 uh, plus one negotiations? Um, do you see any um, sort of um, rivaling states playing a role and um, what the implications of that are? Of course, that's been uh, voiced by the Saudis specifically. They want to be part of the negotiations. Uh, but the, for, for the Iranians, uh, you know, regional issues, uh, conventional arms control are to be regional and uh, to have all the parties uh, on the uh, you know regional parties involved in it, and uh, not to be to, not for Iran to be singled out as the only country whose whose regional policy uh, should be discussed. Uh, now, if, if Iran's policy in uh, in the region is to be discussed for the Iranians, it's important as well that uh, a regional setting that can address uh, U.S. Uh, you know, arms uh, sales to Saudis, UAE, and uh, others in the region, their uh, war in Yemen, their you know, policies around the region are also to be at the table. Otherwise, I don't see that much of acceptance uh, uh, on the part of Iranians to get involved in a discussion on its regional uh, or defense policies, uh, defense capabilities uh, uh, inside the JCPOA or even beyond. So for the Iranians, regional discussions are important, but uh, uh, they need to be regional. I include all the parties that uh, have a stake, but also have uh, uh, something to do with these regional files and uh, their policies are also to be uh, on the table, uh, their uh, you know arms purchases, as opposed to Iran's ballistic missiles program, should be on the table for an arms control agreement uh, or conventional arms control agreement. So uh, I think any sort of uh, uh, you know uh, discussions on including UAE, Saudi Arabia specifically in the discussions uh, on Iran's policy or even Iran's nuclear issue would be problematic, would complicate things uh, because the Iranians would at the end of the day uh, say that, well, it's not only us, you need to discuss others uh, programs and others policies in the, in the region and their arms uh, purchases and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it will complicate things. And uh, we know that, uh, you know, drawn from the past few years, the confrontation rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia specifically that, is, that hasn't been a healthy rivalry. And uh, based on that, I think if Saudi Arabia is including is included, it is it will be only there to you know uh, uh, sabotage the talks, not to let the deal that it saw with fear and considered as a threat to its regional 
position to be revived. So based on the previous, you know, uh, uh, rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. This is the main thing that I think will be added to the negotiations. That's why basically previously regional issues and, uh, you know, ballistic missiles program was not included. There was a reason that is, it is so complicated that Iranians would need a regional setting for that and would require or ask, uh, demand a regional uh, you know, uh, uh, approach for that, and that others might complicate things as they don't like and they are fearful of any U.S.-Iran rapprochement. Thank you so much, Hassan. Um, I'd just like to let the audience know we're going to continue for another few minutes. Uh, we started off late, so we'll add uh, another five minutes to the discussion. Um, but um, we've got a, a few more questions here, so if we could answer those briefly. Um, we can get through quite a few. So Anissa, we, we, um, Hassan mentioned uh, uh, Yemen. Um, well, I have a question here. What might the designation of the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen mean for the future of US-Iran relations? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, what we have seen so far is that uh, definitely there has been a lot of pushback uh, on the designation and uh, on the potential implication for Yemen itself. Uh, but even from the Biden administration in itself, uh, we have seen that just a few days after coming into power, the president allowed almost all financial transactions with the Houthis. Uh, to take place uh, despite uh, the designation of the group uh, as a terrorist organization by the Trump administration. So I think there is definitely the awareness that, that, uh, that this, uh, this uh, designation is problematic and I wouldn't exclude a reconsideration uh, by the Biden administration, especially when put into the context of a broader reconsideration about uh, the US support for the Saudi-led coalition, which we know is uh, taking place, and uh, generally speaking, a reassessment of the US-Saudi relation, including the temporary suspension of arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so I think there is, generally speaking, a reconsideration for the Biden administration, including when it comes to the designation of the Houthis. Uh, so I'm not too concerned that that would uh, create a significant issue when it comes to engagement between the two sides, potentially including on Yemen. Thank you. Yemen does seem to be a nodal point in exacerbating regional tensions. Um, I have a question here that I think Ali um, might be able to answer, and, and it's also directed uh, towards Hassan, but um, it's about Rob Malley, the uh, US special envoy to Iran. Um, what, um, well, does his appointment um, suggest uh, returning to this compliance for compliance? Um, does it um, show that the U.S. or Biden is more uh, open to uh, re-entering uh, negotiations and, and returning to the original principles of the JCPOA? Well, um, I'm obviously biased uh, in, in responding to this question, but, uh, you know, I think uh, there is really not much difference between uh, Rob's position on the JCPOA and the best path forward uh, than what the president has already said, what the Secretary of State has said, what uh, National Security Advisor has said. Uh, you know, they all believe that uh, compliance for compliance, which means uh, that, you know, going back to JCPOA and then using it as a platform to building on uh, for other, you know, on other areas of disagreement, uh, they all are on the same page. Uh, the appointment of someone like Rob, basically what signifies is that um, you know, the, uh, basically the Biden administration has a clear vision for where it wants to go. And it also wants to hand over the task to people who are uh, familiar with the inside outs of the JCPOA and other regional issues as well and want to hit, hit the ground running. You know, they don't want uh, to, to have the same experience that the Trump administration had, which was to have a very a steep learning curve of understanding the issues and then um, you know, ending up on the wrong side of the debate. So, uh, you know, the, the, the very fact, as I said in the beginning, that you have uh, a group of uh, national security officials who are all experienced in negotiating with the Iranians. And I've also seen the, you know, the aftermath of the JCPOA means that they're much more um, level-headed and sober in terms of 
expectations of what could come out of restoration of the JCPOA and also what needs to be done, not just to stabilize the JCPOA, but also to de-escalate tensions in the region. Because at the end of the day, everything is interlinked. And people think that because it's the same group of people who pursued a similar policy in 2015, it's going to be a complete redux of what happened in 2015 and 2016. You know, there are a lot of Biden administration officials who've admitted, for instance, that the JCPOA in 2015 backfired on Yemen. Uh, and uh, they don't want to commit the same mistake, and they want to make sure that these two issues would move in parallel. Uh, capping the most urgent and uh, significant concern that the West has about Iran's activities, which is this nuclear program. But then also in parallel, not as a sequence, but also in parallel, uh, start the regional discussions that could de-escalate tensions, be it in Yemen or in Syria or in elsewhere, uh, which again requires the involvement of an entire different cast of characters and a different process. But I think the U.S. would be very supportive of that. Thank you very much, Ali. Um, I'll address the last question um, to whoever wants to answer it. Um, do you believe that sanctions played a crucial role in the past um, for the JCPOA? Were they effective or did they just serve to cultivate mistrust between the parties and um, increase Iran's uh, clandestine activities? I'll leave it to you three to decide who wants to address that one. So it's the tough question, I suppose. <laughs> Anissa, you're not going to volunteer. <laughs> you know, there's okay, a there's Hassan. a tar off side there's a tar off side of things. I think uh, you 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 didn't take that into account. I think uh, <laughs> I'll I'll be short, and I think Ali and Anissa can add to that. I think if in terms of you know uh, adding uh, you know creating a uh, economic uh, uh, you know pressure for the Iranian nation it was very brutal uh, it was too, it was effective to brutal effect but in terms of bringing to uh, you know action uh, Mike Pompeo's 12 conditions for Iran to uh, enjoy the, the the benefits of the JCPOA they were very much uh, a failure uh, so I think uh, they didn't achieve their goals, their stated goals, but they have created a uh, really a, a hardship, a, a, an economic hardship for the Iranians in general, uh, and uh, and uh, in terms of uh, you know the fighting the pandemic nowadays, Iranians have fought it you know with with uh, really uh, uh, with, in parallel with their fight to uh, stand up for the, to the U.S. maximum pressure, which uh, brought up uh, much more pressure on the Iranians and uh, the, you know, the public, as well as the administration who was trying by, you know, asking for a loan and et cetera, that was refused as a result of U.S. pressure uh, to, to fight the pandemic uh, under the pressure. So that's what I like to say. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, I think I, I'll wrap up now. Um, thank you so much, uh, speakers. Thank you, Anissa, Ali, and Hassan. Um, you've um, really given us a better sense of the prospects um, and challenges of transforming this um, current standoff into something uh, more constructive. Um, I thank you, speakers, for your questions, uh, for listening in, and, um, and thank you all for this thought-provoking session. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. So I will bid you farewell, and um, keep safe. Take care. Bye-bye.